This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Hello again. We're doing double introductions today. I'm going to introduce Rowan. I just wanted to let you know why this is odd and different. I'm introducing Rowan and then Rowan's going to introduce Steve. So Rowan will tell you why that all is. Thanks, Donna. Hi, everyone. I'm Rowan. I'm a UX researcher at REA Group. Um, I was lucky enough to go over to Webstock this year and met Steve just after he gave his presentation. And I think that it was the most exciting time I've ever had because when I heard that you do UX at NASA, my mind exploded. And I immediately left the session after it ended and found him and punished him for a very long time about every single thing that he did at work. And luckily, I was like, Steve, how would you like to come to Australia? And he was like, that sounds great. And luckily, our CIO at REA is a massive space nerd. And I went, how would you like NASA to come in and give us a special talk? And he was like, here is all of the money. <laughs> and so REA is very, very happy to be able to sponsor Steve to come here and share what is going to be amazing insights from UX at NASA. And so a warm, warm welcome to Steve Hellenius from NASA. Thank you. Thanks, Rohan. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, welcome to IoT in Space, uh, Building Compelling User Experiences. Uh, so first, a little bit about me before I uh, get started. I'm a UX manager and designer at NASA Ames uh, out in California. I've had the pleasure of working on some really cool things over the years, uh, UX research and design for software that controls the Curiosity Mars rover, the International Space Station, and then this cool little orbiter that went to the moon called LADI. Um, uh, these days, though, I lead this uh, smaller team uh, that has designed and built um, software for these missions. And today I'm going to be talking to you about an area uh, and new work we've done in crew or astronaut autonomy. Uh, and our main focus on the team is actually building a mobile tool uh, to allow the astronauts to plan and run their own missions uh, more autonomously called Playbook. Uh, and this is an example of how it is used on the uh, NEMO analogs uh, where we tried out before we tried out on the space station. Um, but today what I'm going to be talking to you about is actually a grassroots effort of how IoT can actually be used for spaceflight. And I'll discuss how we built a working prototype to help astronauts perform tasks using um, IoT in space, as well as my thoughts about the state of IoT and some takeaways on how designers can get involved and really build compelling next-generation user experiences with the Internet of Things. So we'll get to IoT in space in a bit, uh, but first let's talk about the state of IoT. So what I wanted to talk about today is that I think we're stuck in a mashup additive design mentality for IoT devices. It seems like if you look at the IoT devices on the market today, uh, almost every solution involves an everyday household object plus an IoT chipset plus a separate mobile app that is then sold as a smart product. And the issue here is that rarely do these devices result in great user experiences. And you could almost look at this as a slot machine approach to building interconnected products. 
Uh, when I was researching all the current devices out on the market when I was putting together this talk, I was astounded by how prolific IoT has become on every imaginable facet of components for our home and everyday life. Uh, there are literally folks working on smart batteries, smart vents, smart coffee makers, doorknobs, washing machines, pet trackers, people trackers, you name it. And there is literally an IoT product being built and made for every single device in your home. And the big issue here is really if you've ever had an IoT-enabled product or if you've read the reviews on these IoT-enabled products, you'll know that for the most part, uh, these devices are coming back as uncompelling. And the question really is, why are most of these examples of IoT so uncompelling? And I think they're uncompelling for a few reasons. Uh, no matter what you do when you're building an IoT-enabled device, you're increasing the complexity. Uh, we've taken a simple device and actually made them more complicated. And there's really a, a very real cost in doing that. In addition, a lot of the devices have a lack of compelling use cases. Uh, so in that situation, we're just making uh, smart things for the sake of making them smart. Um, and then a lot of the devices aren't actually very interconnected. Uh, every device only works with its own app or own ecosystem. Uh, and then you're sort of asking yourself, uh, with many dev devices, it's not clear what benefit we're really giving the user. And then for those few devices, when there is a clear user need and a clear product need, uh, the IoT devices are still falling short. And why is that? Well, one of my thoughts is that the mobile user experience is actually not good enough for IoT. Um, and it's really easy to underestimate how good of a user experience some of our non-interactive devices in everyday life behave. Uh, things are so reliable, predictable, and have a clear method of failure that is so much better than our digital devices. And because of this, uh, when we're building something to our mobile, desktop, digital uh, standards, it's not good enough for the IoT world. So let's take, for example, your standard door lock, light switch, dishwasher, refrigerator, washing machine, coffee maker. Uh, those devices don't need an app to control it. Uh, they don't need software updates. They don't need a monthly service uh, to operate. And they don't fail to function when they're no longer accessible on the internet. And I think this results in this expectation setting and recovery mismatch. Uh, I'm not concerned that my lock is going to crash. At the same time, I'm reasonably concerned that my phone will crash. Having my lock crash is catastrophic. I can't get into my home. Having my phone crash is problematic. I have to reboot my phone. And the words I need to reboot, my door, light bulb, washer, thermostat, are not things that I want to hear. So I think it's important uh, to take a step back and look at what IoT is and what it's really capable of. Uh, and I think the reason that this is important is that we as designers, I think we tend to design what we know. Uh, we look at the world for examples of what's possible. And IoT is so new that there aren't many examples of what can be done. And we tend to design what we're familiar with. And this tends to then center around the traditional user interface. Uh, but IoT is really much more capable than that. So uh, because of that, I think we as designers really need to become more involved with the hardware and technical design for these new technologies to design next generation experiences. And I'm not saying that you need to be able to build these devices. 
but you need to be able to understand what can be built. And it's so much more than just making one or two devices smart. Uh, we're now at a point in time where we have these cheap processor chipsets with Wi-Fi, with an array of sensors uh, that are all packaged together in a very low power package. And this really brings about the potential for these really powerful, innovative design and product solutions. So where does IoT shine and what can we really do with it? Well, I think there are a few areas. Um, if I look at where we currently are, is kind of this additive smart devices. That's kind of our current area of IoT. Uh, but I think where it gets really powerful is in indoor location detection. So this is really detecting all of your devices with fine-grained accuracy. And this is not like GPS, where you would know where something is in a room. This is more like I would be able to know that this device is three centimeters to the left of me. Or I might be able to know that this device is at a 30-degree angle. And this is really powerful because you can start coming up with user intent uh, from these devices and objects in the world uh, when you have such fine-grained location information. And then when you add on to that the fact that you have interconnected sensors and objects, uh, these objects making decisions independently on their own, and these objects all being aware of the world, you start uh, getting into some really compelling product ideas. And then if you start looking really far out to the future, um, you get into this area almost known as like smart dust, which is uh, where you have chipsets cheap enough and small enough that they're no longer even associated with a given object but are just present in the environment. So I think these areas are really key areas for where IoT can shine. Uh, but of course, this also brings about some really uh, major design and UX challenges. Um, and the ones that I really think are a big deal is how do I effectively convey my intent to my hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of devices? Uh, we're used to having a few interactive devices in our life, uh, but having thousands of them is a whole other spectrum. And then how do I usably control these devices? Uh, the scale of devices are involved. Uh, you know, it means that I will probably have to control a swarm of them rather than ever interact with one individually. And then related to all this, how do I ensure interoperability? Um, if we look at the products in our home, in our life, uh, they're made by many different manufacturers. And in order to really build a compelling IoT experience, these all will have to work together seamlessly. And this is a big challenge because we've never, we've never had this and we're not really used to that type of integration between products. And then uh, one area that I don't think we really think that much about on the UX side is how do I keep my devices secure? Uh, in a world where all devices are interconnected, this is a really big issue from a user experience standpoint. Having one device compromise could mean that every single device in one, one's person's life uh, could malfunction because of one rogue agent or one bad IoT sensor. So uh, these are really important design and UX challenges to think about as we're designing these IoT applications. Now, with all of that said, how does IoT relate to NASA? Uh, well, it relates in a few ways. Uh, there are, if you look at the spacecrafts, uh, like the space station or deep space uh, spacecrafts, uh, there are typically only a few astronauts on board the spacecraft, uh, but they are constantly in close contact with mission control. 
And not only that, mission control actually controls the majority of the spacecraft from the ground. And when we look at future deep space missions, the crew will be so far away from mission control that we will need to change uh, how to conduct space operations to let the crew operate the spacecraft more autonomously. And this is really where IoT comes into play as a potential way for the crew to become more autonomous. So when you look at what astronauts do on a daily basis, uh, they are primarily running experiments and maintenance operations on board the spacecraft. And many of these components on board are so complex that astronauts have to follow a set of step-by-step instructions closely in order to complete the task. And these are known as procedures. And astronauts train up on these procedures and activities uh, that they'll conduct in preparation for when they're in space on the ground, but even in the best case scenario, they will be executing these activities most likely six months from when they trained. And a lot can happen in six months, and couple in the fact that they're going over hundreds of different procedures over the course of a mission, and you can be sure it's pretty likely that you're not gonna remember every step of what you trained on back on the ground. So, what do these procedures look like? Well, originally, they were paper, binders and binders of paper. And today, they're digital paper. Um, Not much has really changed in between when procedures were originally paper-based and how they are today. Um, And we thought we could really improve on this with the Internet of Things. And the idea was, what if we could actually guide an astronaut uh, on how to perform a task or an experiment without ever being trained? And what if the objects themselves that they have to work with could actually know where they need to be installed and if they were installed correctly? So that was our goal, uh, to make a working prototype of an IoT system that could guide an astronaut to perform a procedure without training. And uh, this was actually a summer project that we did over the course of two summers. And we actually did this with an awesome team of interns. Uh, They did both design, development, and user testing. And they actually ranged from high school to college to grad students. Um, So this really was very much a grassroots effort. Um, And so our approach was to actually use uh, relatively cheap off-the-shelf components such as ESP8266s, which are these really uh, now very inexpensive uh, Wi-Fi IoT um, chipsets, accelerometers, augmented reality, and haptics. And uh, admittedly, the augmented reality is the only component that's actually kind of expensive right now. Um, But everything else is very, very inexpensive. And the goal was that what we were building in five years would actually be uh, dirt cheap and uh, scaled down to the size of kind of a grain of rice for these IoT sensors. So this is what we used as our um, building blocks to build this. And the initial idea was let's track all of the objects and be able to tell where they were placed. And as the astronaut picks up an object, It will then guide them to the location and alert the user if it was installed correctly or incorrectly. And this sounds really simple, but it's actually very powerful because it allows for three different things that we don't have right now. The first one is nonlinearity execution. Uh, When you look at a procedure uh, by the medium, the the nature of the medium, they are a linear page of steps. Uh, But with this system, you could literally pick up an object 
that might be in the middle of a procedure, or and then after that, pick them an object that was at the beginning of the procedure, and you can install them in any order that you wish, as long as the system would allow it. So what this means on board a spacecraft is that uh, when that procedure was written and when everything was packed up, you can imagine things have actually moved around in between now and then. So an astronaut can just actually grab things as they go, and they don't even have to worry about what they're picking up. Uh, so this is really powerful. Uh, the other big one uh, was immediate feedback on install. So the reason why this is really useful is that as I'm actually building this, as I place this object in here, I immediately know whether or not I did this correctly or incorrectly. Um, rather than I put together the whole thing and then I get a call for mission control that it wasn't done right. Um, and then the third really big one is actually finding and locating objects. Uh, this is actually a huge problem on the station right now. Uh, there are so many places that things can be stored, uh, and it's so uh, hard to find things that being able to precisely detect and locate where something is is actually a huge benefit and efficiency time saver. So uh, we went ahead and built this, and initially we hit some snags with the indoor positioning. Uh, indoor positioning has improved a lot with these IoT sensors, but it's still very much in its early stages. Uh, and in order to mitigate this, rather than having all the IoT sensors know exactly where they are in the world, uh, we decided to kind of uh, have the strategy of have the astronaut would wear a, a small wristband. Uh, and then with sensor fusion, we would detect whether or not the astronaut picked up this object um, to mitigate the pickup detection. And then we had a haptic motor on this uh, little wristband that would alert the user um, if they installed it correctly or incorrectly. So we iterated on this a few times. It was really early. It was a little rough, and it was a little laggy. Uh, but aside from the slight lag, it actually felt really natural and convincing. And it was almost like second nature. Uh, you could pick up this object, and it would just guide you on where to install it. It, it felt very cool. Um, and here's a very early version of what the first cut looks like. And you can tell that this is a really early version because there's electrical tape all over it. Um, and I want to point out that although the sensors actually look fairly large, um, if you actually look at the, uh, the chipsets themselves, they're actually fairly small. So if you were building this in production already, these are very small sensor stamps. But that was just kind of Rev1. Um, what we then looked at was actually integrating augmented reality into IoT. And uh, with this, we were looking at it as a visualization into the state of the IoT system. And the key point here is that this wasn't a requirement to interact with IoT objects. It's just one way of looking at this IoT world. Um, in addition to that, uh, we also leveraged the computer vision capabilities and mapping capabilities on the augmented reality device to really smooth out the gaps in where we currently are with indoor positioning that we expect to have in the future. And when uh, another big benefit when uh, we were looking at integrating augmented reality into IoT is that we, would, uh, we were able to draw paths and visualization of the system in 3D space. Uh, and what's really cool about this is you can actually literally lean in and see where the object could be located uh, from any angle. Uh, and it's so much more usable than just looking at a static image or a video of how to install something. So we put it all together, and here are our results. 
I should say this is a really early working prototype. It's still in active development, but I think this shows a compelling vision of how this technology could work in the future for autonomous spaceflight. Okay, so what you're looking at is the first-person point of view of exactly what the user is looking at on the HoloLens. Uh, they're actually initiating one of, their, uh, one of the procedures, and um, after they initialize it, you'll see, so that's the wristband that they're wearing, um, but you'll actually see a holographic overlay of where to actually pick up the object. So as they walk through into a different room, you can see this path um, being drawn exactly to where the object needs to be picked up. And then you can see the, the tool itself actually has a little sensor on there. After it's picked up, the, the IoT system now knows to actually go to the next tool that you need for this task, and it guides you exactly to where it is and where uh, you need to be. And then after you pick that up, it then knows uh, to take you to the next step of the procedure. Uh, so now it's walking you back into the room where the experiment rack was. Um, and I, I really can't, uh, I, I, I can't say enough about how, uh, how awesome it was to see this kind of path of where to go. Um, you, you really don't have to actually read anything, right? It just guides you to where to do these things. Um, so that, that was kind of the path stuff that we had built in. And then when you're actually um, at the experiment itself, these are little kind of call-outs of the procedure steps, but we're able to actually show AR overlays of where this object needs to be installed and oriented. Um, and this is, again, much more compelling than just having an image, right? You can actually see exactly how it has to be oriented and installed. And then when you actually install it on there, you'll get, it will know that you've installed it correctly and then move you on to the next step. And in this case, uh, they're uh, removing uh, mice from this uh, transfer rack. Um, but this is where we currently are with this work. Um, and I, I think it's really exciting with what we've been able to come up with so far. So what's next with this work? Well. Uh, the first area uh, that we'd like to work towards is actually, um, I, I think this technology has a lot of value and a lot of future implications for space missions, uh, but we really need to make the technology more robust. It's literally just at the point where it's powerful enough to prototype, but it still has a lot of rough edges. Uh, and we've only looked at very small potential interactions with the AR and IoT prototype. And we're really excited to look at new areas. So uh, things like with orientation, being able to torque objects. So like if you're um, using a drill or a screwdriver, being able to know whether or not that bolt was actually um, torqued appropriately, those types of things. And looking at more fine-grained ways of controlling the prototype, I think, are really powerful. Uh, and then related to that, I think that this, uh, this early work can pave the way uh, and open up the potential to build new devices uh, and hardware prototypes that might leverage IoT technologies. So, in conclusion, in conclusion, I think IoT is incredibly powerful, but we've really only scratched the surface of what's possible. 
Uh, for designers, I think it's really important to start playing with the hardware and seeing what these chipsets are capable of and move beyond the traditional interface and into different control mechanisms and feedback. But then when you're doing all this, be very wary of the complexity you're adding onto the device and really make sure that this is solving a user need. So in conclusion, I think IoT has the potential to create a UX nightmare or utopia of the future. Let's make sure we're creating the utopia. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, straight away. All right. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Work Brecken. Um, I heard a story a long time ago that engineers at NASA have built in a lot of redundancy in their processes. So two sets of teams will work on the same project and they'll compare outcomes at the end. Yeah. Is there a similar uh, process for design and UX within NASA? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, right now, uh, there are very few teams that are practicing UX and design at NASA in terms of a product sense. Uh, so we're fairly rare in the agency. And I, I actually, I think there's really only, outside of our group, there's one other team that's doing it. So uh, it, it's one of these things where uh, as we build these products, uh, uh, I hope that we start getting more advocacy for user experience and how we build compelling products. Uh, but at the moment, we're actually a very small um, part of the overall uh, agency. Hi, Steve. That was uh, really fantastic. Uh, uh, the question you. I have was about um, the need... So you mentioned the whole complexity problem and trying yeah. to keep the, the complexity... Uh, similar to or, or only where, when it's going to dramatically improve performance. Um, I suppose my question is, if you're in space, yeah. how, how happy are you with a tool that allows you to not have had any training that then requires an awful lot of, um, I suppose, risk if something goes wrong or whatever else? Is it, is it one of those things that it's a great value add, but you end up being additive again because you need to have those old procedures in a shelf somewhere and everybody do six months' worth of additional training as well? Uh, yeah, so that's it, it's interesting. So that's uh, it's, that's pretty close to how things are in the in the fact of uh, on board uh, the really important procedures. Like there are paper copies of those in case your you know laptop, your whole uh, computer system goes dead. Um, but uh, when you look at a future deep space mission, uh, you might get into a situation where there's literally uh, more things that you can actually. Um, that you need to be trained on, then you have the time to train on. Uh, so I think that no matter what, we'll always have redundancy with these things. So if for some reason a system like this wasn't working correctly, you could fall back to a you know, kind of checklist-style interface. And then if for some reason that wasn't making sense, you could talk to mission control. Uh, the only issue is that if you're looking at a deep space mission, uh, like on a Mars context, it takes... Um, depending on the positions of the planets, will take anywhere from 8 to 48 minutes to have a round-trip response. So all this back and forth could actually take a really long amount of time. So, yeah, I think there will always be redundancy, um, but uh, we need to make uh, new software and technologies to really make uh, deep space missions more efficient. That was totally mind-blowing. So um, what's the tech behind the um, location detection at 
that granularity? Uh, the granularity right now is uh, quite low. Um, we were looking at kind of a a uh, combination of the RSSI of the uh, chip with the other objects plus the uh, sensor fusion of the accelerometer spike. Uh, but having said that, we've seen a lot of research papers. Uh, there was one recently out of MIT that shows that you can actually get really fine grain uh, triangulation with uh, regular IoT chipsets uh, that have Wi-Fi. Uh, now, we, uh, it was kind of out of the scope for this project to look at that stuff, and it kind of came about halfway through as we were working on this. Uh, but that is something that we're interested in trying out. So um, we've kind of been designing for really good um, location fidelity. Uh, but at the moment, it's actually, um, it's, it's fairly coarse. So, um, and I, I'd hate to kind of put a number on it, but... Uh, maybe like, kind of like a foot, maybe, something like that. So, uh, but with those new techniques, you can get it down to centimeters. Hi, Steve, over here. Hey. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just wondering. Yeah. I have three really quick questions. Um, <laughs> is one of the employee benefits of working for NASA going into space? Wait, hold on. <laughs> Second, how does one become a UX manager at NASA? And three, you clearly love your job because you can't stop smiling. So what did you do to celebrate when you got that job, this job? Great questions. Uh, so the first one is, unfortunately, there is no perk of being able to go into space if you're working at NASA. Um, but... Uh, I guess, like, for some, we, we do get to work on things that are fairly close to that. So, like, when we're working with uh, astronauts uh, to test out our prototype software, we get to uh, go to, like, uh, these extreme environments, like the, the NEMO analog, where uh, they actually have astronauts living underwater. Um, so, although we don't get to go underwater, I mean, we at least get to kind of interact with these these uh, really incredible group of people that are doing these types of things. Um, in terms of how I got this job, I uh, did my, my graduate degree at Carnegie Mellon in human-computer interaction, and I uh, did my thesis project with NASA, and a few of us got job offers, and I started out as a researcher, UX researcher there, and then I started doing product design, and then I eventually moved up uh, to become... Uh, the, the team lead, essentially. Um, and it was interesting. I, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what I did to celebrate, but I really, uh, I, I knew that this was the job that I wanted, like, when when uh, it came up. I just, like, I, I didn't even look for another, like, HCI UX job. I just knew that this was the one. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk through some of your other work? Like, sure. the rovers or... Yeah, so the, the other, the main work that we actually uh, build is what's known as mission planning software. Uh, and these are tools that um, are used to actually model and uh, control uh, different aspects of the spacecraft. So in the case of unmanned missions like the Curiosity rover or uh, LADEE, uh, you actually have all the subsystems for the instruments that go on on the spacecraft, and uh, they use our, our tools to actually figure out what's actually possible for that given day. 
and that translates into data usage, uh, uh, flight rule violations, like you can't have the arm you know, move in a certain way, that type of thing. Um, and you've got basically large groups of people all controlling this very expensive resource, which is the, the rover or the space station. Uh, so the, the tools that we make are uh, designed to basically effectively get science return out of these missions. So for the manned missions, it's the same type of thing, except you're planning out exactly what all the uh, astronauts are doing on board and making sure that what they're doing doesn't interact and uh, cause any safety concerns with what everyone else is doing. Uh, in addition to that, there's all these, like I was talking about, there's so many things that the astronauts don't touch that also have to be figured out on board, and they're kind of basically maintaining all that. And then that work has turned into this area in what we're looking at in crew autonomy, where we uh, built this tool called Playbook to actually have the astronauts themselves handle some of these tasks. So the difference there is while these other tools were expert user type tools, uh, because the astronauts do so many different things in a given day, uh, with our mobile uh, tool Playbook, it's actually all about walk up and use uh, because they have very limited time to actually do these things. So that's the, the type of work that we usually do. Yeah. Uh, g'day. Um, just want to comment. Uh, a guy called uh, Jean Louis uh, Gosset made a comment recently in a post um, that he's calling the Internet of Things the Internet of Poorly Working Things. <laughs> yeah. He kind of uh, sees the problem as um, the high tech mentality of quality of Apple versus the low tech mentality of the consumer electronics industry. Um, how do you see sort of this? Do you worry about the fact that a lot of these chips are actually sort of the lowest common denominator, given that Challenger was kind of caused by a you know, very small, cheap, poorly made component? That, that's a great question. So uh, when we're looking at this stuff, uh, these are really prototyping efforts, right? So this wouldn't be the actual hardware that we're using on board if we were to do these things. Uh, in, in a prototyping standpoint, uh, we're looking for how do, can we actually uh, convey the, the design that we're going for. Uh, but you're exactly right. Like If we were looking at uh, adapting this uh, from a technology demonstration to an operational uh, tool, uh, that would be definitely an area to keep an eye on. Uh, and there's a number of things related to that, too, where if you start looking at deep space, you need to look at radiation-hardened parts, that type of thing. Yeah. All right, can we have another round of applause? Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.